Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant ID Podcast. Today, I have Dr. Jessica Little with us. She is an instructor at Harvard School of Medicine. She's an associate physician at the Dana-Farber. I saw that uh, you're a graduate of University of Virginia for medical school. Uh, does that make you uh, a Wahoo or how does it work? Yes, exactly. A Wahoo. Although I will say, you know, I'm a little torn in my loyalties because I'm a Tar Heel for undergraduate. So uh. um, there's different loyalties, I think, uh, when it comes to basketball, but yeah, both welcome. teams are good, luckily. I'm hoping that Dr. Cameron's not listening because probably the one thing that you have in common is the desire to beat Duke. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then uh, after medical school, I went on to do residency at the Brigham and from there, a fellowship at the combined program Brigham and MGH. And then from there, went on to uh, transplant ID at the Brigham and at uh, Dana-Farber. Yes, that's right. So that was the thumbnail version. But tell us about your journey, how you got the transplant ID. Yes. So my journey to transplant ID probably started when I was in medical school with a actually a transplant surgery rotation that I had the opportunity to do. And it was it was a very cool rotation because they really did a great job incorporating medical students. And we got to go on several of the procurements. So I got to take the helicopter over to pick up one of the organs, which was a really unique experience. And then I remember thinking when I did the rotation that this was a different kind of medical care than anything I had ever seen up to that mm -hmm. point in medicine because it was so interdisciplinary. There were so many different teams and players involved. And I really felt like, oh, this is the type of medicine I want to be doing. And so that started my interest in transplant in general. And then by the end of medical school, I had uh, decided that I really liked the area of infectious diseases. And I, I really wanted to come at it more from the perspective of the complications that can occur after transplant mm -hmm. rather than the surgical intervention. And so by the time I applied for residency, I already knew that I had a deep interest in infectious disease and within that in immunocompromised or transplant ID. And so when I interviewed for my residency position at the Brigham that day, I met with our program director and he said, oh, you love transplant ID, you have to meet one of our faculty members, Francisco Marty. And so he mm -hmm. set up a meeting for me with Dr. Marty. And he was extremely enthusiastic, extremely kind, just an inspiration from that first meeting. And I decided at that time, I really wanted to go and work with him and be one of his mentees. And so throughout my time during residency, he was a mentor to me and continue to deepen my interest in transplant infectious diseases that really taught me a lot about clinical trials and clinical research and how that aspect can be applied to immunocompromised hosts. And sadly, he passed away just in the beginning of my first transplant year wow. of training, which was devastating. But I do feel very lucky to have learned from him during the time that we had together. And I think I have continued to have many incredible mentors in the field. And so I couldn't talk about my journey without mentioning him because he was a fundamental, fundamental part of that. Yeah, he, he truly was a remarkable guy. He, he definitely managed to uh, 
squeeze a lot of life, academic life into a uh, career that was tragically cut way too short. I just know a little bit from what people have said about the uh, circumstances of his death. And I guess I find some solace in that he was doing something that he loved in terms of the photography. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think that was the first vacation I had seen him take in quite a while. So I do think he was, you know, in a place where he was happy when, when that did happen. Wow. Wow. So um, you finished your fellowship and then you, you just jumped right into maybe one of the toughest areas in all of medicine, which is bone marrow transplantation. Yes. Yes. I would say over the course of my training, you know, I really started in a place where solid organ transplant was what inspired my interest. But during residency and during my fellowship, we have, you know, this combined program where we work very closely with Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And so we just see an enormous amount of bone marrow transplant patients, patients receiving cellular therapy. And so that really started to pique my interest and just seeing the explosion of novel therapies that are coming out in that realm, really groundbreaking um, Mm -hmm. developments in terms of treatment for patients, but all with enormous impact on the immune system and in sort of different ways that we don't completely understand. I think as of yet, that really became my greatest area of interest. So when I started my faculty position, I'm primarily focused on Hemonc, BMT, uh, cell therapy, um, and have my clinics over at Dana-Farber, um, which allows me to work with that patient population. Perfect. Did they give you Red Sox tickets, by the way? <laughs> no, sadly, no. But luckily, I think, hopefully I won't offend anyone, but I don't think this season was too hot. So maybe next season I can advocate for for that. Yeah, a last place uh, finish isn't great, but that, I, I guess you can feel a little bit better in that Paul Sachs's team didn't do that well either. Yeah. He's a Yankees yeah. fan. Yeah, we have some deep internal family rivalries. My husband's from New York, so <laughs> I know I, I know of those Yankee fans. You you're aware of the phenomena. Mhm. Mm-hmm. So you've done a lot of work, very uh cutting edge work on CAR T cells. And I'm going to admit that my knowledge of those cells is, is growing, but it's still just at the tip of the uh, of the fork. Can you tell us about what those are, why people use them, who gets them? What's the deal? Yeah, yeah. I'll give you the, the overview. So CAR T-cell therapy is a novel immunotherapy that has been approved for treatment of several different hematologic malignancies. It's an autologous T-cell procedure. So typically, the at least the products that are approved thus far. And so patients will usually have their T-cells removed via apheresis, and then they will genetically modify the T-cells to express a chimeric antigen receptor that targets a specific tumor antigen. And then they expand those cells at the manufacturing facility and then bring them back and infuse them into patients with the idea that these are highly effective immunotherapies that are very specific to target the tumor antigens. And you can choose different tumor antigens to try to target sort of expanding the use outside of the original indications. They also use these intracellular signaling domains that can mediate the T cell activation. So over time, we've seen, you know, that I think the earlier CAR T cell products had potentially a little more toxicity, but using modifying these intracellular signaling domains can mediate the the toxicity and some of the newer products have less toxicity. 
The first products that were approved, probably the ones that most centers are seeing the most of, were CD19 CAR T cells. Mm -hmm. And these were directed against the CD19 antigen on B cells for the treatment of relapsed refractory lymphomas and BALL. And they've been really groundbreaking in terms of treatment for those diseases. The There are many, many trials going on with different targets and different antigens in that same realm. And then BCMA-targeted CAR T-cells are the newer indication that has been approved for the treatment of multiple myeloma. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the two, two areas that have been approved. But as I said, many, many in the pipeline. And I think in the coming years, we're going to see indications outside of oncology for this. So at least at our center, we've had many trials going on for uh, cellular therapies for the treatment of solid tumor malignancies. And then now there's a big explosion of CAR T cells for the treatment of autoimmune diseases. Mm -hmm. And I hope, you know, one day we do, there are cytotoxic T cell studies right now for the treatment of infections, but Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see how, you know, these immunotherapies may be used for the treatment of infections. And there's, Mm -hmm. you know, also in the background, some newer therapies like NK cell therapies that follow the same sort of structure and framework, but using different cell populations that could be interesting to see. So these therapies are highly effective so far for the indications that they've been approved, but are limited by some significant toxicities that I think are important to keep in mind. The first being uh, cytokine release syndrome. So when these cells are infused and have very rapid killing of the tumor cells, you get this big release of cytokines and some patients can develop an almost sepsis-like syndrome with fevers, hypotension, sometimes hypoxemia. And in the early studies, this was happening quite often in up to 80% of patients. Mm. It's a little bit less now, as I said, with these newer co-stimulatory molecules. And then treatment for those that toxicity can include tocilizumab, an IL-6 inhibitor, or corticosteroids. The other major early toxicity that we see is neurotoxicity, Mm -hmm. and uh, that's seen in less patients than with CRS. It's about 20 to 40%, but patients can develop altered mental status, encephalopathy, word-finding difficulties, all the way up to more, much more rarely cerebral edema and seizures. And so, and that's typically treated with corticosteroids as well. I think we've gotten much better at managing these toxicities and potentially treating them early. And so, I don't think it's you know a reason not to pursue, but definitely something to think about and be aware of when you're dealing with these patients. Mm-hmm. Very rarely patients can have HLH, this sort of macrophage activation syndrome, which is the very extreme version of CRS, and those patients can get very sick. And then in the long term, there are some other less severe toxicities that we see the sort of on-target but off-tumor effects of the mm-hmm. CAR-T cells where you can see pr- prolonged B-cell aplasia with hypogammaglobulinemia, as well as delayed hematologic toxicities with delayed neutropenia or thrombocytopenia. That uh, mechanism is not fully elucidated at this point. And then, of course, infections, which hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about in more detail. Great. Wow. What an amazing overview. So now I'm going to dive in a little bit on the cytokine release syndrome. And this is something that I think you're going to know the answer to, but many of us are not. So you get somebody who 
got the conditioning therapy, the fludarabine or whatever it is that they get in preparation for the infusion of the cells. They're going to be neutropenic. He did the infusion of the cells and now they appear septic. To me, they would appear septic. But you who sees these a lot, how do you know, like what, what do you operate on at your gut saying, eh, that's cytokine release syndrome. I'm still going to give them antibiotics, but that's a CRS. How do you know? What are your clues? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think an area that we're continuing to develop more knowledge in, I would say, just to preface that I don't think there's any definitive way to be 100% sure. And so, mm -hmm. especially for a neutropenic patient, they do usually end up getting initiated on broad spectrum antibiotics and having the full workup. I think timing matters a lot. Mm. Uh, so for patients that are developing neutropenic fevers or sepsis-like syndrome after probably day five, that's really outside of the typical window for CRS. You're often mm -hmm. seeing it earlier, sometimes as early as day one or two after cell infusion. You can see it later, but it, it definitely would trigger me to be a little more worried about other causes. So that's the one first thing, timing. There's some data coming out from Kai Rajeski's group where they're trying to use biomarkers to try to define, you know, what's the difference between patients who have only CRS and patients who have CRS plus an infection. And they have some data suggesting that the use of sort of the baseline biomarkers for the patient, like CRP and ferritin in combination with the procalcitonin mm -hmm. may be able to help you distinguish CRS from infections. I don't think we're 100% there on using mm -hmm. any kind of tool like that to make a, a decision uh, in that moment, but I do think they can be helpful. I will say, full disclosure, I'm not the biggest procalcitonin fan. I think my institution got really excited. We used it a ton, and now we've pulled back a little, but I do mm -hmm. think it's, an, it's one of several markers that may be helpful in that setting. And then and I would I assume that a low procalcitonin would point away from infection with all the caveats of the limitations of that assay. Exactly. Yeah. In his study, he suggests that a procalcitonin of 1.5 above 1.5 may be helpful in, in determining that that could be an infectious cause of mm -hmm. fever. For the other aspect, I would say would be just the response. So patients who respond very quickly to tocilizumab that also might tell you that this was clearly CRS versus a patient who continues to have persistent refractory fevers. And I think patients who have very severe refractory CRS where they're going on to high-dose steroids or even developing this sort of HLH syndrome, those are patients I would be very nervous to take off antibiotics as well because mm -hmm. they're going to continue to have a high risk for infections. Sure. If they didn't have an infection already. Yeah. In terms of the neurological, somewhere when I was reviewing it, and again, it's it's hard to know when you're reading something what's real and what's hypothetical. There was mention of trying to avoid drugs like voriconazole, which I'm always happy to avoid, and cefepime because they might somebody might get confused. Now, cefepime is a workhorse for our uh, patients. How do you approach uh, use of that drug in somebody that you're worried might develop the neurological? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that we do consider it definitely in those patients. I think if they have normal renal function and are not very elderly, then there's a little bit lower risk for cefepime neurotoxicity. Everybody's very aware of it now and thinks about it a lot, I, I think. And we 
tend to have pretty low rates of highly resistant gram-negative organisms. So we're often using ceftazidine mm-hmm. or febrile neutropenia as a first line in a patient that we might worry about that. But I don't think it's a total exclusion to using cefepime if you have a patient that's otherwise doing okay. Now, in terms of things that you're using, uh, I reviewed uh, protocols from institutions around the world, and there is one that is a little different, and that's your institution in terms of using antifungal prophylaxis. But you can back it up with data. Tell us about that. Yeah. So the prophylaxis discussion in general, I think, is a really interesting one in this realm because for many reasons. So first, we don't have a lot of prospective randomized data on prophylaxis, or we have none in this population. And so I think a lot of the practice is extrapolated from our stem cell transplant population, who is a little bit different, I would say, Mm -hmm. than this population. And then in addition, a lot of times the prophylaxis practices are just adopted straight from a clinical trial protocol. So I think it really merits sort of a step back and thinking about antimicrobial stewardship, both from the bacterial and fungal perspective, do we think these patients really need these uh, prophylactic agents? And so for antifungal prophylaxis, I would say if you look at all the data that's been published out there, mostly honestly coming from retrospective cohort studies, the clinical trials actually, I would say, don't do an amazing job of reporting on fungal infections or opportunistic infections in general. And I think a lot of times you're stuck digging through the supplemental materials, sort of trying to identify if there have been fungal infections in some of these larger studies, um, which makes it difficult to draw any conclusions without further detail. So amongst the studies that have been published, I would say the rates of invasive fungal infections are fairly low with a a bias towards having higher rates in some of the earlier studies that came out, including Mm -hmm. the clinical trial patients. And I think that's important to note, because if you look at the rates of fungal infections in more recent studies that I would say include less refractory patients, now that we have a better understanding of how to manage toxicities, the rates of fungal infection are pretty low in CD19 recent studies, you know, I would say from zero to two percent in the for mold mm-hmm. infections, and then the BCMA studies are, are, I think, are still limited in this area, so it's hard to draw too many conclusions. But overall, if you take a step back and look at what's been published, the rates are not very high for fungal infections, and I think we're going to be seeing these therapies used earlier in less sick patients, less, you know, as a first, second line therapy rather than a fifth, sixth line therapy, as well as for non-oncologic diseases. And so I hope that as a group, we can sort of take a step back and think about for each population, does that population need antifungal prophylaxis? And within that, you know, talking about yeast, mold, and pneumocystis. So to be a little more specific, I would say for yeast, prophylaxis for fluconazole. Mm -hmm. Most centers have given yeast prophylaxis. So I think our knowledge of what happens without it is limited. Our center is the exception, as you noted. Mm -hmm. So we put together a large cohort of 280 patients with B-cell lymphoma, and there was a very low rate of fungal infections overall, and within that, both uh, of yeast and mold infections. And so 
we feel comfortable not giving that prophylaxis at our center for that reason. I think it's harder for other centers who started off giving yeast prophylaxis to really know mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. the risks. For mold prophylaxis, I think that it's it should be much more of a conversation because I think there are decisions being made now across multiple institutions about giving anti-mold prophylaxis. And hopefully we can use this have ID be involved in these decisions to use a perspective of antimicrobial stewardship because we are seeing rising rates of antifungal resistance. It can be quite challenging to deal with breakthrough invasive mold infections. And so really being smart about the populations that we use anti-mold prophylaxis for and trying to avoid it if we have pretty low rates of invasive mold infections makes sense to me. But I do think we have to take into account that different institutions have different rates of of mold infections climate and geography p- play a big role in that so in boston you know i think our climate plays a role in the fact that we have overall low rates of invasive mold infections in our population sure the the situation might be different in a place like say md anderson or a place like um alabama for example where uh, or florida where maybe molds are more common in the environment. Exactly. So I feel like, you know, I couldn't say one recommendation for any one institution on this, but I do think we can say that we need prospective data, ideally, to guide, you know, our decisions in this area. We need to have ID be involved in these decisions. And we need to continue to reassess as we're dealing with populations that maybe have less of a risk of invasive fungal disease as they're being less refractory patients, as well as potentially in the future patients who may have a higher risk if we're seeing other modalities, other targets that maybe will have a higher risk, disease groups, or even allogeneic CAR T-cell therapy where patients will be getting, it will be much more similar to our typical bone marrow transplant um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. patients. So for those looking for the reference or a reference, Little et al. Blood Advances 2022 is is a very good reference in terms of what lack of antifungal prophylaxis looks like. Actually, let me take a step back. So talking about individualizing these patients, there's increasing data that if uh, patients have had multiple therapies before and, and if they're being treated for certain malignancies, there's higher risk for uh, infection. What have you seen in your practice or what have you come up uh, from the data? Yeah. So we, I would say in our center, we primarily treat patients with B-cell lymphomas Mm -hmm. and less, very few cases of B-A-L-L, but in the data, it suggests that patients with B-A-L-L may have a higher risk of infection. Mm -hmm. And I think when looking at fungal infections too, I definitely have wondered if that might be the case because some of the studies with higher rates of fungal disease out of the Hutch and MSK and some of the earlier big studies for CD19 CAR T-cell therapy included BALL patients and had slightly higher rates of fungal disease. So that's one thing to think about. Definitely. I think the road traveled for these patients is critical because mm-hmm. that really defines their risk for fungal infections. And when or infections in general. And when you look at some of these studies where infections are being reported, some of them are happening within the first couple of days after cell infusion, which, you know, I think really indicates that the patients have a high baseline risk going into Mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. um, And that should be considered. 
One example from our study on the fungal infections was that in the three patients that had mold infections, two of them had transformed CLL and had been treated with BTK inhibitors prior to CAR T-cell therapy, which I think is an independent risk factor for fungal infections. And so that really spoke to the fact that whatever the patient's risk going into this procedure will have a big impact on their infections thereafter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and that definitely uh, it, a growing need to individualize these patients and and you can have a broad approach for prophylaxis, but needs to be individualized because these patients are going to be quite different, especially with what you had mentioned that there's going to be other indications beyond patients that have B-cell malignancies that have already received four, five, six therapies. If somebody is a lupus patient, for example, that's going to be a whole different level of risk. Exactly. Exactly. I do think when you think about infections after CAR T-cell therapy, it can be helpful to have a framework for thinking about it. So one way that I break it down is thinking about the different time periods of risk. And Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. this is quite similar to what we see with our bone marrow transplant patients. So you have this early period of risk, usually around day zero to day 30, where patients are hospitalized, they've received lymphodepleting chemotherapy, they're neutropenic. So this time period is the highest risk time period for infections period for patients, the much higher density of infections during that early time period. You see a lot of nosocomial infections in the early time period. So bacterial infections predominate during that time. You have patients with lines who are sometimes in the ICU. So all of those sort of nosocomial risks play a role. Viral infections also occur during this period, but a little bit less frequently than bacterial. We see most of the C. difficile infections that occur during that early period. And then fungal infections, again, are fairly rare, but this is the time period when yeast infections tend to occur if they do occur, which I think Mm -hmm. makes sense uh, with all the exposures we talked about. After day 30, then you can think about the later time period. And during that time period, it's really viral infections that predominate, which is, I think, driven by these this real deficit in humoral immunity from the B-cell depletion. And even if you look within the, the bacterial infections that occur in that later time period, many of them are respiratory infections. Again, I think driven by the, the deficits in humoral immunity. Fungal infections can occur in that later period as well, um, but continue to be rare. And then I think one interesting point is we don't usually think of cell-mediated immunity being as impacted in these patients as we do in our bone marrow transplant patients. However, there have been studies showing that patients can have low CD4 counts out to a year after CAR T-cell therapy And there have been a number of late pneumocystis cases reported in this population as well. So I I do think there is some impact on cell-mediated immunity that needs to be considered for these patients and definitely keeping an eye out for uh, pneumocystis when patients are coming off prophylaxis. And I found a very uh, good reference for this. It really covers a lot of this by uh, Kampuri, K-M-P-O-U-R-I, and uh, Little et al., in uh, Transplant Infectious Disease just published in the past month. So uh, 
I think if you're new to CAR T cells or you're old to CAR T cells and want to find out what is uh, uh, at the most cutting edge, I recommend that review. Let's uh, switch gears and leave CAR T cells unless there's some additional things that you think uh, people must know because there's so much to talk about. But I also want to talk about some other things that you're doing as though everything that you're doing is not enough. No, that's great. We can move on. So uh, phages, one of the more more exciting things that's uh, happened in infectious disease in the past decade, and you've done some work with those. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I definitely wouldn't call myself, you know, an expert in phages in terms of being in a lab studying them or anything like that. I know there are many people who have a lot more experience in that realm, but I was, I think, lucky enough to be able to take part in treating a patient with a mycobacteriophage. And so I can talk a little bit about my experience doing that. Well, let me tell you how that works. So there's probably about 20 people in the world that have used phages clinically. So you're in the top 20 in the world. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's good to know. I didn't know it was that small, but... Well, maybe um, maybe, maybe 30. I don't know. it's, It's a small number. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's It's a difficult therapy. And so this started when I was actually a first-year fellow. It's one of my first clinics. I saw this patient with a disseminated mycobacterium chelonia infection, primarily cutaneous involvement of the left upper extremity, but he had some involvement of the right lower extremity and the periumbilical area. And he had already progressed through multiple antimicrobials had developed a fair amount of toxicity prior to seeing us. And in that setting had been on monotherapy for a little bit. So he had a very resistant organism and we, it almost, you know, had features behaving like M obsessus where it was Mm. just highly resistant to, to all of the antimicrobials that we typically use. And so I had seen him in clinic with Dr. Marty and we had tried to rotate around his antibiotics, but He continued to have very refractory disease with these large lesions on the extremities that would wax and wane and drain pus. Um, And by winter of that year, he had had progression of the lesions to the point where he developed septic arthritis of the Mm -hmm. wrist and he had heavy involvement of the hand. It was quite debilitating. And he had been hospitalized, you know, I would say 10 or 11 times due to toxicities from the different antibiotics he was on and other issues related to his infection. And so at that point, we had heard about the use of bacteriophages, which are viruses that are found in the environment and can kill and infect bacteria for the use of mycobacterial, non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections. There were a couple case reports out there. And we were connected with Graham Hatful's lab at University of Pittsburgh, who had previously participated in with some physicians in the UK in treating a woman with, I believe, cystic fibrosis with a mycobacteriophage cocktail. And so we were interested because we felt like we were on last line therapy with essentially no options left to give him. And so the process uh, that we took was that we had to obtain uh, an isolate of his M. from our lab and then have it sent over to Dr. Hatful's lab to test it across the many different mycobacteriophages that he had in, in his sort of library. And when you Just, say obtain, it means the fellow you had to obtain it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's actually quite difficult 
I think to do this sort of thing without having some sort of research funding, you know, I think a lot of the process, the shipping of things, you know, it's not built into usual clinical care. Mm -hmm. And I think that made it very challenging. I was lucky that I was working with Dr. Marty, who had funds to be able to sort of, and then eventually Dr. Baden, Lindsay Baden, who helped with funding to sort of proceed through these different steps. But Mm -hmm. I think for the normal clinician, it is quite challenging to, to figure out how to get around some of these some of these barriers. So, and just to pause for one second, because I think this is one of the more interesting pieces of when I was learning about bacteriophages. So they're ubiquitous in the environment. They're all over in the dirt, in the trash. And there are these different groups and and student programs where you can go phage hunting. Mm. You basically go out and you find like the dirtiest (laughs) sort of most disgusting area you can sample and you um, take a sample and they engage the students and bring them back to the lab and teach them how to isolate bacteriophages. And so I thought that was a really cool thing that I learned as part of this process. And you can look up the individual phages that you end up using. So we were able to look up the phage that we ended up using at the end of this story. And you could see it was isolated in South Africa from a rotting aubergine, which I just thought was very funny. So, um. Yeah, yeah. I think there was a movie about truffle hunting in Italy. So maybe you, you can be uh, a movie about uh, plasmid and phage hunting in uh, Massachusetts. Exactly. I think it's a great way to get out in nature, it seems like. So. Apparently. Yeah. So we um, sent our isolate to Dr. Hatful's lab and he had found that it was only actually, there was only one phage that was active against a mycobacteriophage called muddy. And in the studies that have been published so far, usually multiple phages are used in a cocktail because the efficacy of a single phage isn't really known. And so Mm. We had a big discussion about whether it was worth pursuing in that setting, but since we didn't have any other options, we we did want to pursue it. So we ended up pursuing a single patient IND for the use of this bacteriophage, which was actually not that difficult of a step in the process. I, I think the most difficult step was the contract that had to occur between our hospital and the University of Pittsburgh from a legal mm. perspective to allow a non-pharmaceutical grade product to be used in a patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and that took a long time, but we sent a lot of emails and eventually it was approved. And then we had to come up with our clinical protocol and s- sort of think about how we were going to administer this to the patient. And Phages can be given in multiple different modalities. They can be given IV, inhaled, topically. We decided to do IV intravenous administration. We felt that would have the highest likelihood of having efficacy. We talked about doing topical administration because he had such extensive skin disease, but it was, I think, going to be very challenging to sort of administer and give to him. And and so we ended up just going with the intravenous. And he did that for almost a full year. He did the phage therapy in combination with his three antibiotics that he was taking. And we also 
just before the phage had taken him for a big surgical debridement. So I think one important point is that phage therapy in these really refractory cases may not be used in isolation, and it can be hard to distinguish which one of these different modalities is really having the impact. You can't really say for sure that it's only the phage. But for him, he improved a lot after getting this triple combination therapy of surgery, antibiotics, and phage. And he had had the most stable disease that we had seen him have since we knew him. He had multiple biopsies that were negative after that. And he um, actually, I saw him just the day before yesterday, and he's been doing really well. He's off all of his antibiotics since July and has been stable. And not to say that there haven't been ups and downs in between this point, but I, I do think for him, it seems to have been a therapy that was helpful. So, and how often did, did you give it to him? Was it weekly, daily? It was daily. It was twice a day for that full year. And I think one of the more challenging aspects was the, you know, we don't really understand, I think, to the full extent, the optimal dosing of phage therapy. I think the pharmacokinetics are not completely understood, in especially for these uh, non-tuberculous mycobacterial diseases. And so in a lot of ways, you're not operating on full evidence base. You sort of have to make decisions based on what's been used and what's out there. And so that's what we did for him. He had to pick up his phage every week because of the stability of the phage sort of after leaving the pharmacy Mm -hmm. was not felt to extend beyond like eight or nine days. And so that I think was a big challenge for him. He had to come to the hospital every week to pick it up, take it home in the syringes, and then he would infuse it himself through his line. So that's definitely something to consider for patients. It's not, you know, an easy therapy to give. And he ended up getting a central line, central line associated bloodstream infection towards the end of his course. Of course. So there's definitely complications that can occur, but if you have no other options, I think it's reasonable to consider. So you mentioned a syringe. Is it something that's given as a push, as a drip? Yeah, it's given as a a push. We had him come into the hospital for the first few administrations to make sure that he was tolerating it okay. And after we saw that he had, then he would take it home and do it as a, a push. Now, if if I had a patient here tomorrow that I wanted to do this on, is there a place online that I can go that would tell me in the way you just told me the steps I need to do? Or is this, am I creating a job for you to put a uh, guide for? So you want to give phage therapy? Yeah, no, I don't. I mean, I think there's a couple good papers out there that talk about the clinical aspects of phage therapy, but I don't think there's too much out there from the logistical standpoint. I think the Dr. Hatfield's lab was extremely helpful. You know, I think at this point they've worked with maybe 30 or more different physicians to try to administer this therapy for non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections. So they are able to help a lot in the process. But yeah, I, I'm happy to help anyone who has questions as well. I've definitely connected several people to Dr. Hatful's lab for cases that sound like they would be amenable. And I think one last point to say that is important I don't want to leave out is we were able to measure that our patient actually developed 
antiphage antibodies over the course mm-hmm. of his treatment that were pretty robust, even just a month or two into treatment. And so that I think is a really interesting question of how the immune system and the phage work together or at odds. And he seems to have had some durable effect of the phage, but we really didn't know, you know, how long you need to continue treatment. Was it still having efficacy after he had developed these antiphage antibodies or was it, Mm -hmm. you know, just this initial period, like a sort of high dose early infusion to help with clearance of bacteria? I think we don't know the answers to these questions 100% yet. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Wow. So, so much to, uh, to still learn and to understand, yeah, are these antibodies clearing it from the person's system so that PK takes a dive or are these antibodies somehow tagging onto the cell and calling in their buddies to kill it? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think there were a lot of questions I wish we could have asked in retrospect, if we had had, you know, our own lab to do all of these different analyses, it would have been, it would have been really interesting to be able to investigate a few more points from the immunologic side. And endless time and no other patients that are calling you and <laughs> exactly. no, uh, no epic or messages calling you and telling you that the antibiotic that you thought was going to be just perfect is actually not perfect because the patient has an allergy to it. Exactly. So in our last few moments, you are clearly one of the young stars in our field of transplant infectious disease and infectious disease in general. And Selfishly, I want a lot more people like you. So what's it going to take for us to uh, keep the pipeline robust for uh, smart, energetic, creative, and uh, passionate people like you? Yeah, I think that's a big question that we're all facing in ID right now. It's the most interesting field. I think it's just so wonderful from that perspective. And I think we're going to see increasing need for us as we see more and more immunocompromised patients and now in every disease group, if we're, they're getting more immunotherapy and mm-hmm. cell therapy. So I think the novelty will be really interesting, but I hope that we can build pathways for trainees in early in their careers that make a lot of sense to them. I think we historically have, you know, really divided into people who are 100% researchers and people who are 100% clinicians. And I think for those who are interested in some of these areas of transplant ID, there's huge opportunities for clinical research, for investigation via clinical trials, and building pathways that will allow trainees and early career physicians, ID physicians, to have opportunities to do both clinical care, which I think is fundamental And then also clinical research may be an important way to to bring people into the pipeline. I think I've been very lucky in my early faculty position to have both clinical time and time for clinical research and clinical trials and some time for antimicrobial stewardship, which I think gives a good balance for all of the things I'm interested in and will allow me to develop in in the research realm a little bit quicker. Terrific. Well, I, as as somebody who's uh, mid-career, feel very lucky to have you as one of the uh, people coming through the pipeline. Uh, when I uh, was trying to teach myself about CAR T-cells, I uh, started reading papers and your name kept popping up again and again. So I know I had to uh, 
reach out to you to see if you'd be on the podcast. So great. Thank you so much. It's been really, really fun. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for joining us. And uh, until next time, it's Transplant ID Podcast.